Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. The most downloaded episode of season one of A Certain Age was our very first show, when Dr. Anita Sadati joined me to talk menopause, toxic rage, navigating this natural life transition with your vibrancy and wellness intact. That show hit a nerve. Listeners are still talking to me about their own experiences with toxic rage and menopause other maddening side effects. I am so delighted to welcome Dr. Anita Sadati back to the show, not to talk rage, but to talk love, sexual health, intimacy, arousal, and self-care down there. Welcome back, Anita. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. I'm so happy to be here again. Uh, I'm really, really excited. I, I think we, we talked about this all February long. We're going to be exploring love from a variety of angles. And I really am thrilled to have you kick off this month because women and women's sexual health really needs to be at the center of this conversation, right? Not on the sideline, not taking a backseat, which is too often the case. So as, as we dive into love, intimacy, and self-care, what do you think women should focus on and pay attention to in order to maintain sexual vibrancy and wellness? That's such a great question. You know, it's so interesting they say this should be at the forefront because so many times in my practice, what happens is, you know, I'll be sort of finishing up an exam or an office visit and my hands on the doorknob to go out and then all of a sudden uh one more thing (laughs) (laughs) and that's when and that's when the question comes up it's something that even women nowadays just feel very uncomfortable talking about or bringing up to their doctor or maybe because they don't even feel like there are solutions to what they're experiencing so um to begin with i'd say that around the transition time certainly in late 40s, early 50s, there is a significant impact on women's sexual health. So just to give you kind of what that impact is epidemiologically, um, there are about 42 million women over the age of 50 in the United States, and probably close to 30% um, do do say that low sexual desire is, is a problem in their life. And there's fully another 10% of women, or about 4 million, who can be diagnosed with a clinical disorder called hypoactive um, sexual desire disorder. Wow. So it's not really small potatoes. Um, it's it's very obvious why this, this kind of thing's going to happen, but more on three different levels. Like you can look at, for example, physical factors that are going to impact libido and interest um, you can also look at psychological factors and then just generally some hormonal reasons why women are going to experience either a decline in interest, desire, also more difficulty with orgasm and sexual pleasure. So, wow. So there's really like a trifecta of issues that are that are at, at play here. So talk to me about the physiological component of that. Like, let's start there. What, is, what does that look like in terms of um, women's you know, sex drive as they age? So the first thing is that the first thing when someone says to me, you know, I really have no sexual interest. And in some cases, it may not even bother them anymore. Like they'd rather curl up with a good book or a Netflix series, but obviously their partner (laughs) may feel a little differently about that. And so the, the first question is, you know, is sex painful? You know, is it, does it not feel the same? And so there we want to kind of focus on the vaginal health, what's going on there. So once we have some hormonal decline, we start noticing changes of this lack of estrogen in the vaginal tissue. So the vagina becomes thinner, 
less elastic, there's less collagen and elastin, there's less lubrication, and also less blood flow. So on top of more pain, potentially, more burning is another symptom that a lot of patients complain about. Um, There's also less blood flow to the clitoral area, and so orgasm can become a lot harder, and it's very frustrating. So those are all things that you can say as a blanket statement are going to be related to the lack of estrogen. Okay, so uh, is, is this just affecting the vagina, or does it like affect the the vulva or other areas of a woman's body? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's also something that's going to affect the outer genital area, the clitoral area, vagina, the bladder. So, I mean, just as as we unfortunately may notice, there is a little bit of a an increase in wrinkling and sagging skin after menopause. Well, this unfortunately <laughs> leads to saggy vagina. <laughs> <laughs> in some cases. Uh, but but luckily, there there are a lot of great things you can do about that. All right. Well, like what? Tell us. So the first thing is you, you definitely need to have an exam. You know, this isn't something I think the telemedicine alone should be, you know, used for. You need to have an exam to figure out, okay, why is it that I may be feeling discomfort or downright pain? You know, is it dryness, but could it be an infection? Could it be fissuring? You know, sometimes women, because of dryness, end up developing microscopic tears. And uh, and these are things that really need to be addressed and fixed. So so I love that you just said addressed and fixed. So I want to just be clear. This is fixable, right? This is not something that we, like, people have to put up with and endure. Oh, my gosh, 100%. And there's so many ways that you can do it. So when we talk about estrogen being at the... Um, the forefront of why these conditions happen, a lot of women say, well, I really am not interested in, in, in dealing with hormones. I don't, I'm concerned about them. I, I'm worried about using them. I'm worried about breast health, whatever it is. If they have family history of breast cancer, sometimes there's a, you know, there's sort of a big X you know, sure. across estrogen. But what you can, what you can um, turn to actually is, first of all, the first line of therapy is going to be non-hormonal vaginal moisturizers. Now, there are several out on the market over the counter, but what I prefer are moisturizers that contain more natural products. A lot of the -the over-the-counter stuff like Replens, for example, is a very common moisturizer. It has a lot of chemicals that are just not ideal to be putting in the vagina. It's almost like putting in your mouth. The tissue is very similar. So whatever you wouldn't want to put in your mouth, you know, you don't want to put in your vagina. Um, So the the first thing is something like hyaluronic acid. That's a non-hormonal treatment. And that's the same thing we put on our skin to try to increase moisture, thickness, resilience. Um, so that can be very effective if used also with a lubricant. Now, is that over-the-counter or do you have to work with a doctor to get that type of uh, hydrochloric? I can't even say Hyaluronic it. acid. Yeah, <laughs> it's a mouthful. Uh, yeah, well, no, it, it actually is, it is over-the-counter. But as a physician, you can also use a compounding pharmacy to the, put together different little concoctions for patients that have hyaluronic acid, that have vitamin uh, E, that have coconut oil, natural binders. And so it's it's a really nice option to use something like that if you don't want to use hormones. But the workhorse for treatment for vaginal dryness and burning and painful intercourse related to estrogen deficiencies, of course, going to be hormones. So estrogen or DHEA, which is an adrenal hormone that turns into estrogen in the cells. Both of those are highly effective. The only thing is that you do have to use it sort of on a continuous basis. You have to start out using it every day for a couple of weeks, and then you need to increase it to twice a week ongoing. 
Well, okay. And so, um, if so, it's these non-hormonal lubricants. It's estrogen. Are there other um, fixes for f- the physiological aspect to you know dry vagina yeah. and painful sex? Tell so, us. <laughs> so, what I think is the most um, interesting and encouraging uh, to me, it's a no-brainer to consider using non-invasive. Um, rehabilitation therapy, there's a, a CO2 laser device called the FemiLift, and there's a radio frequency device called the Votiva. There are several others on the market, but these are treatments that your gynecologist can perform if they have them in their office. These guys actually stimulate collagen and elastin formation. Wow. And they, yeah, and they also can improve the pelvic floor tissue. It can create more support under the bladder to help with urgency, urinary frequency, and incontinence. It helps with with spontaneous lubrication. It improves the blood flow. That sounds like maybe it's dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Do we actually want spontaneous lubrication? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Work will not be getting done today. (laughs) But but it's it's really something amazing because you just have to do initially three treatments and then once a year. This is for the woman who really doesn't have time to be focused on throwing things in her vagina every night. I mean, it's just not, you know, who can do that? There's too many creams and applications going on already. Exactly. We have, we have a very crowded, uh, you know, bathroom shelf. We, yeah. can't, we can't squeeze more stuff in. So that's cool. So it's nice that these um, kind of fixes that you only need to do maybe three times a year exist. So are there... Or we, once a year. Or once, once a year. year. Yeah. That's even better. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one and done. I'm there for that. So, yes. so tell me also, is there anything that you can do... When you said pelvic floor and sort of building muscles, is there anything that we can do in terms of exercise? You know, can you exercise your vagina? Oh. Is, that, is that even a thing? That is such a thing. Okay. <laughs> All right. There are whole Facebook groups devoted to this. <laughs> so um, there are a few devices and a lot that are over-the-counter that women should look into, especially if there's um, a concern about tightening. There's a lot of relaxation that can happen after pregnancy and, and childbirth. Um, you know, so, so there's ways to kind of rehab the vaginal tissue and the bladder. There are three devices I think that are kind of interesting. One is called the Kegel Smart Device. So, again, talking about, do you have anything else to do all day? It's it's this uh, it's a it's a small device that you put in the vagina, and it vibrates intermittently to signal you to squeeze. Wow! Around the device, do you? But so, do you use this all the time, or just when you're exercising? Um, you can use it for a certain period of time, but I guess theoretically, you could keep it in all day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and squeeze away. But they have that. And then they even have devices that give you biofeedback. So there's an app. It can connect to your app and it can tell you how you're doing. Like, how is the squeezing going? So there's a little bit of a biofeedback with other devices called the LV. So, and how do you spell LV? What's E L V I E? E L V I E. Yeah. Okay. So Kegel Smart and LV are two devices that I think are really interesting. And then you can really take it up a notch with um, a patient device called the Intensity Electrical Stimulation Device. So this is more of a probe that goes in the vagina and it will actually release an electrical stimulation to cause a contraction. 
Wow. So, yeah. So you don't even necessarily have to do any work. It is this do like it. childbirth contraction or it, just like like a sit up contraction? No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. The, Define so, contraction because yeah, yes. I I have three kids. I have been there. I'm not sure that I want contractions right. again. So basically, what we're thinking about is just trying to tighten the area, so kind of almost to make the vagina feel smaller, as opposed to pushing out. So it, it's something that I actually do recommend that you work with your doctor to make sure that when you do the quote-unquote Kegel, which is pelvic floor muscle contraction, that you're doing it correctly. I find a lot of women, I'd say 70% of the time, they're doing the exact opposite of what you want to have happen. What? Wait, yeah. ha- wait okay. Yeah. I need to know about this. Because yes. like when, when you think about uh, vaginal tightening, you think Kegels. And you think about like bladder, you think Kegels. So yes. have we all been doing it wrong? Please, I please? hope <laughs> not. But unfortunately, when I... When I actually test patients in my office to say, okay, so we're going to do the Kegel, we're going to do a contraction, let me, you know, I have my fingers in the vagina, and I say, okay, now now do it, and they're literally pushing my fingers out. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not You're what's like, supposed to happen. Wrong direction, lady. Exactly, exactly. So, t- so tell us, like, how, what, what should we be, what, can you walk us through it, just like verbally? I kind of can, okay. I kind of can, it's kind of graphic, but. Okay. So what you want to think about is actually as if. So it's it's squeezing as if you want to hold urine in, not release, or even better is if you wanted to hold a fart in. Like oh, that's okay. that's the direction. So you need to be committed. You have yeah. to be like super committed. <laughs> Super committed, super laser focused. Okay, pretend you're on a first date <laughs> and you do not want to be fired in. Right. And All right, ladies. Chili was ready. on the menu. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. So that's where, but that's where other devices like weighted balls and they even have something called a yoni egg, which is this beautiful kind of um, egg-shaped gemstone that you can oh. actually put in the vagina and you need to hold it in so you'll know if you're doing it wrong, if your egg drops to the floor and shatters. <laughs> you know? If your egg rolls away, yeah. <laughs> get yourself to this, that Kegel device ASAP. Exactly, exactly. That's so cool. All right. I'm like, I'm intrigued. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look these all up and I'm going to link to them in the show notes because um, I love that like there's literally an app for that. Like there's that whole joke about there's an app for that. Uh, there's like apps for Kegels. Yes. That's like we live in the 21st century for sure. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. So psychological, you mentioned that's also now that we've got our eggs and like we know how to like, you know, improve our Kegels. How do we address the psychological components to to you know, sexual health and intimacy as we age? Yeah. So so the other aspect with psycho- with psychology around the transition time is that we talked about how hormones can affect physical changes, but hormones are also all over your brain. You have thousands of receptors for estrogen and progesterone and testosterone in the brain, as well as receptors for things like cortisol and stress hormones. So it's not just the sex steroids that can affect brain and psychology. It's also related to stress hormones. Also, what is your neurochemical balance there? So serotonin, like we think about that. When we think about serotonin, I think most people think, oh, that's the feel-good brain chemical. You know, that's what a lot of medications try to increase when you're treating somebody for depression or anxiety, the SSRIs, for example. But The problem is that high serotonin, believe it or not, actually reduces libido. Wow. Um, Dope. Yeah. That's so weird because I thought serotonin was like that happy hormone. So why does it it reduce libido? So 
The why is, is a good question. That I don't know why, but in studies, serotonin absolutely can reduce libido. And it's borne out by studies of women who are placed on SSRI medications like Zoloft and uh, Prozac, uh, Celexa, those are t- Lexapro. These are all SSRIs. They stimulate an increase in serotonin in the brain. And it's very well known that these medications actually um, increase the potential for um, difficulty with orgasm and also are well known to decrease libido. Wow. So the why is not clear. The, the, the neurochemical that's really helpful for libido is more like dopamine. So that's kind of the thrill-seeking, excitement, you know, kind of daredevil. Um, that's a really different type of, of feel-good. Um, it's more excitatory, though. So how, how would you increase your dopamine then to improve your libido as you age? What, what, give us some, some tools. So dopamine, so, so part of this, so when we talked about psychology, dopamine is going to increase in the setting of, of things that are novel and different and excitatory. Um, and so one of the things that I, I think that women need to understand is that as we hit that um, transition time, when you have a lack of novelty or uniqueness in a situation, like when you've been married for a long time, <laughs> right? Like like that, something like that. If it's you know sort of the sameness, it it's not. It doesn't work for women. So there was a really interesting study um, that I had read about in the New York Times where they compared men and women who were given images of sort of like the so- sexually appropriate, um, attractive partner, sort of the same photos. And they did functional MRI imaging. So this is to see if they had, if they could see areas of the brain related to desire and arousal lighting up. And what they found was that over time, you could show a guy the same image over and over and over again, and they still get like lighting up the areas of interest. With women, it went down. Like over time, that response just went down. So, That's fascinating because I like would have thought it was the opposite, honestly. Nope. <laughs> Which is why it doesn't matter how old you are or what kind of shape you're in, your husband is going to chase you around the room <laughs> no matter what, you know. So that's kind of the good news. That's hilarious. <clears throat> yeah. Oh my god! But like the bad news for us. So what? What would a woman who's feeling, um, you you know, I mean, I guess we could come up with all sorts of things that a woman might do, but. From a medical perspective, if somebody, if a patient's coming in, I mean, you're, you know, I'm not saying that you're recommending that they, like, find new sex partners and that they, like, dress up. Like, if you were to talk to a patient, you know, what would your advice be around increasing dopamine and managing sameness in terms of libido? Well, yeah, that's a fabulous question. So these are, these are definitely some tools that you can use to try to um, kind of combat the, the um, I don't want to use the word monotony. But the monotony of what the sexual experience may have may become. So first of all, you certainly want to make sure that your relationship quality is good. You know, if there are issues, I mean, I remember writing a blog post about this, and I said, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. If you find your partner repulsive, you're not going to want to have sex. It doesn't have to be repulsive, but it right. can be if there is some conflict. You know, that's going on. It's really hard to then translate into a positive sexual encounter later. So working on how you guys communicate and, you know, wanting to be with each other and not being angry or irritable or having any resentment. So that's obviously the first thing. The second thing is good quality sleep. 
So there are studies that show when women get a really good night's sleep the next day, they have much more interest in sexual in sex. That is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So quality sleep is huge. The other thing is um, obviously focusing more on foreplay. So there's a lot of studies that show that women, you know, maybe less than 18% of women can actually orgasm with intercourse. They actually, more 30, 40% are going to orgasm with clitor- clitoral stimulation. So, you know, not skipping that part is kind of, you know, don't go straight for the goods, you know, you got to kind of work on that. And there are some interesting ways to to do that, especially since one of the things that happens with menopause is that um, arousal is a little more difficult. You know, the stimulation, because blood flow goes down and collagen and elastin go down, um, there you need more to to achieve orgasm or to achieve a quality orgasm, which also can sort of shift. And so I recommend for women that are in that situation, two things. One is look at using some nitric oxide supplements because nitric oxide helps to improve blood flow. So what, what is nitric oxide? Nitric is oxide is a chemical mediator in the body that is responsible for vascular blood flow. So it's important for a lot of things. It would be helpful for someone with high blood pressure to relax the blood vessels there. It's great for women that have um, Raynaud's phenomena, like hold hands and feet. Uh, it's great for kidney disorder. Um, it's awesome for for arousal and libido. So is this, again, something that you get through a doctor or is it over-the-counter? This is over-the-counter. There are wow. two, two over-the-counter um, companies that I like, their products. One is called Berkeley Life Nitric Oxide, and the other one is Neo40. Those are two oral ones. A capsule one is a, like a two, and you just do two of them a day. And I, I patients, I, they're coming back for it all the time from my office. They're loving it. I bet. If yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. the quality of your orgasm. People yeah. are probably like scarfing them down. Sign like, me yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I'm going to get those from you after the show, too, so I can put them in the show notes so people can explore that for themselves as an option. Yeah. So you said there were two things. So the, the nitric, and then what was the second one? Did I say, t- oh, well, what? let's see, nitric oxide. Oh, the other thing actually was related to women who are on antidepressants that increase serotonin. Uh, one thing you could try to do is to see if, in working with your doctor, if it may be appropriate to switch your medication to something like Wellbutrin that actually does increase dopamine. Ah. So a lot, and as a matter of fact, there are some practitioners who will treat women with the categories of sexual dysfunction with Wellbutrin, regardless of the presence of anxiety or depression, because it does boost the dopamine. So I think, you know, it's so important for any uh, woman who's listening to this, who's thinking, you know, I I need some of these uh, interventions to, you know, to to educate themselves about what's possible. Have a conversation with your doctor, because I love the way you started the show by saying that, you know, you've got your uh, hand on the doorknob, you're exiting in the room, and the woman's like, and one more thing, yeah. like, <laughs> my sex life, yeah. you know. Um, so I think that people, that's important to encourage people to know that it doesn't have to be that way. If there are things that have changed, uh, if there are things that you were wish were different or better, that you should be having conversations, not just with your partner, but with your doctor as well, that there, that there is help. Yeah. Absolutely. I, it, this is not. This merits more than a hand on the doorknob conversation. This is a a separate visit that you should schedule with your physician and m- write out all of the issues that you have. Do some research behind it. See what the doctor finds helpful in their practice. What would they recommend given what they're talking about? Get a thorough exam. 
you know, to see where the issues are. There's so much to do. I mean, and you can also work with uh, practitioners like pelvic floor physical therapists, for example, if there's beyond just dryness or um, estrogen-related deficiency. There could be pain syndromes. There could be nerve neuropathy issues. So it, it's not just one thing. There are so many layers to it, and it deserves you know, a focused visit with your doctor. That's such great coaching. I, I you know, because we, 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 women are really good about making appointments and checking boxes for their family members, maybe nagging their spouse, but to really put your own um, sexual health front and center is, you know, something I feel like I need to like, you know, stop talking to you and go make some appointments right now. <laughs> but we are going to, but we are going to keep going. So I know we've touched on hormones a little bit. So is that is that have we covered hormones, or is there more for people to learn about hormonal interventions that can help with sexual health? Uh, you know, post menopause. Yeah, that's for perfect because I did I didn't want to forget this. So, um. So hormone therapy, as we talked about, not hormone therapy, but hormones in general, as we talked about, have have a huge impact on brain, which some people argue is the biggest sexual organ for women is their brain. Um, thousands of receptors, right? The thing is that what a lot of women don't realize is that testosterone, which we think of as a male hormone, is critical for sexual behavior. So women have testosterone. Women continue to make testosterone even after menopause. So even though the ovary has stopped making estrogen and progesterone, it's still making testosterone. But the issue is that sometimes that loss, the testosterone may not be adequate. It may actually fall as we age. And that can be horrendous for sexual interest and response. So checking your testosterone level with your doctor would be really helpful. And what most um, menopausal societies recommend is that if you have symptoms of testosterone deficiency, which I'm going to get into in a second, uh, and your blood levels are in the lower 25th percentile of the range. So it doesn't have to be out of range. It just has to be on the lower end of the range. If that's coupled with low testosterone symptoms, you're a candidate to consider testosterone therapy. And if I tell you what testosterone therapy may help with, you're going to be wanting to sign up for that too. So, <laughs> tell the, us. So the the symptoms are going to be obviously decreased libido, um, increased weight around the middle in particular, and a slowing of metabolism, decrease in muscle formation, increased depression and anxiety symptoms, increased irritability and impatience, increased issues with focus and concentration. So it's such a important critical sex hormone and women don't even sometimes realize that they have it that they they have testosterone or they need testosterone so that to me is like a, a game changer if you're an appropriate candidate so i feel like every single woman who's listening is thinking like i have low testosterone <laughs> issues or, or is this like simply covid and shelter in place because everything that you ticked off i was like you've been talking about my last 11 months <laughs> No, well, that will. Is it testosterone or all the banana bread I've been making? I don't, I don't know. Is it the bottle of wine every night, or is it testosterone? Well, it's related. You know, it's, yes, it's a little course. bit related. You know, because your ability to manage and handle stress is going to be reduced when your hormones are not normal. And just to even back up from there, so testosterone, big, big game changer. Also, really helpful with with orgasm frequency and intensity. So that can that's another thing. 
But just backing up to hormone therapy, so I think women got a really the real short end of the stick back in 2002. At that time, um, there was a large study called the Women's Health Initiative that came out, a um, huge study with, that was actually looking to see if hormone therapy would reduce the risk of cardiovascular events because there was a lot of uh, data, a lot of research that showed that hormone therapy could reduce your risk of heart attacks and things like that. So that's what the, the study was actually looking to achieve. Unfortunately, what ended up coming out prematurely, so they actually stopped the study early because they found there was an increased risk of breast cancer in certain groups using hormone therapy. Now, the sad thing about this study is that that then pulled the rug out from, from women in terms of considering that or for doctors even prescribing that uh, because of concerns about breast cancer risk. But now, years later, the study has been really um, not it's, torn apart, but it's been it's been investigated. And there are so many reasons why epidemiologically it was so flawed to make that determination early. First of all, the study wasn't powered to look at breast cancer risk. The second thing is that the average age of women in the study was over 64. They were When you look at women between the ages of 50 and 59, which is your prime hormone replacement therapy ca- uh, category group of women, mm-hmm. those women in certain situations actually had a decreased risk of breast cancer. And they definitely had a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease. So the whole fear around considering hormone replacement therapy for the majority of women, I'm not saying it's for every woman, sure. but the majority of women, this is a huge consideration because that in some cases, really changes uh, the way you experience menopause. That is absolutely fascinating because e- even though I feel like my knowledge around like what's appropriate testosterone levels is like astonishingly lacking considering it's my own body and I should be knowing these things, I do know that there is that um, concern about hormone replacement therapy and breast cancer. You know, that has <clears throat> been widely and extensively covered in popular like magazines and media that I consume. And I had no idea that there was second guessing around this concept. So, you know, it's it, again, it just goes to show that you should be talking to your doctor. You've got to keep yourself, you know, up up to, you know, to date on what's what's happening with um, medicine. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I love how you also talked about the fact that the study, they were, you know, they were looking at older women when it was really younger women <clears throat> that would benefit from this. And so there was just sort of a mismatch between like who was being studied and who was going to be benefiting. So that sparked a question in my mind, which I've had, which is, you know, is there a difference? And, and we know we've talked about vaginas aging and as we age, but is there a difference in, in vaginas uh, sort of broadly for women who have had children and women who have not? Because you know, not everyone is listening is, is a mother or a biological mother. Like, mm-hmm. Is there a difference between um, the two types of vaginas? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because... Actually, there are opposite problems that can end up happening in women who have never had a vaginal delivery uh, versus women who have. So even though there's a lot of overlap with some of the symptomatology like um, dryness and burning and painful intercourse, um, where it can start to diverge is that if, if, if things go on for long enough, if, if you kind of ignore those early symptoms, then what happens is the vag- the vaginal canal can actually become smaller and tighter, but it, 
the, the problem is where are you starting from? So if you're starting from a vagina that has never had a vaginal birth, that shrinkage is horrible. You know, it, it makes it impossible to accommodate anything in there. You know, mm. so so that's a sort of a separate issue that can happen. On the flip side, women who haven't had vaginal deliveries are much less likely to have bladder issues, bladder or rectal incontinence issues. So in some ways, they're a little bit more protected against that. that that's not a get out of jail free card fully because yes. there are women who've never had vaginal deliveries that still have incontinence issues and overactive bladder issues. But in general, you're certainly far more protected than women who have had vaginal deliveries and multiple vaginal deliveries because that can impact the support structures around the bladder. So, you know, at least if you've had vaginal deliveries, you're less likely to have that, you know, I can't accommodate anything in there, but, <laughs> you know, but you're more likely to have bladder issues as well. So there's definitely a difference between how women can experience those changes. Okay, that is so interesting. So we are we're nearing the end of our time here, but I do want to explore a little bit more about the bladder issues because you know, you know sexual healthy, you know, self-care for your for your lady parts, you know, I'm using all these like silly euphemisms, but it's beyond <laughs> just sex. It's beyond like you know, sex with a partner, it's beyond maybe, you know, intimate self where you you are able to have sexual pleasure on your own. But it's really about um, sort of beyond sex. It's about keeping um, just sort of your life, your lifestyle, um, to be able to have urinary continence and stuff. Tell yeah. us, what, tell us what we can, tell us what's normal, what's abnormal, and what people should be doing or thinking about to make sure that um, you know, they're living a, a well, vibrant life. Yeah. So, I mean, just to give you a sense, the the feminine. Uh, incontinence pad industry is probably like a billion dollar a year industry. So this is not a small problem. Um, upwards of a third of women uh, after childbirth certainly um, experience incontinence issues. Uh, more than that, probably I'd say 40 to 50% experience uh, urgency incontinence or frequency bladder urgency symptoms that really can affect and impact their life and their daily living if you're constantly looking for a bathroom. Um, so, <laughs> you know. I'm like laughing because I'm always like, that. that is like the first thing. When I, we, when I go to the movies, when I did pre-COVID, <laughs> I would always sit in the aisle. You know? yeah. So I'm like, I got to get up in the middle of the movie. Yeah. We all know that. Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm like, I need the aisle seat on the plane, you know, <laughs> you know of course. So, so the first thing is that it, this is not, you are not alone if you have this issue. The second thing is that there are there are some basic things that you want to make sure are in place before we move on to sort of step two. So step one is, um, are you of a normal body weight? Because unfortunately, if you are overweight, the, the pressure on the bladder will increase the risk of incontinence episodes and bladder urgency and um, overactive bladder um, episodes. The second thing is, are you on medications that might increase the risk of urinary symptoms like blood pressure medications or diuretics or anti-diabetic medications? So there are a lot of things um, that will end up that you're taking for other health issues that will impact the bladder. The third thing is, are you someone who consumes a lot of bladder irritants? So what I mean by that is that the bladder can get irritated very easily by some substances that we drink or eat. The top three are going to be uh, coffee or tea, anything that's caffeinated, alcohol. I knew you were going to say that. Sorry. I knew you were going to say that, and I'm not happy. 
I do not accept that. I do not accept that. I just want to be clear. I like wine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I wouldn't have imagined. Who doesn't? Let's just say that. Who doesn't? Uh, So alcohol is a a huge bladder irritant, unfortunately. Um, Citrus uh, beverages, anything that's sort of acidic, even vitamin C. So in, in this COVID time, everybody's downing vitamin C, which they should. It's an amazing protection for COVID, but... It's uh, it can be a bladder irritant in certain amounts, so that may be something you want to look into. And carbonated beverages, that's more than three. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I am happy to stop drinking orange juice. Oh, okay. <laughs> and how much of that are you drinking? Uh, <laughs> not a lot. Not a lot. But so. I but I'm eliminating it from my diet. Okay, that sounds good. Anita, this has been absolutely so amazing. I have. I, I'm just excited. I was like taking so many mental notes. I'm gonna put all your recommendations into the show notes because I know that women listening to this episode are really going to benefit as they think about how to care for their their body and what they understand that what's possible. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, though, I want to ask, is there, I mean, you shared so many wonderful tips, but is there something that you really want to leave our listeners with that they should know about? Gosh, I mean, there's a lot of things. I think one thing I did not mention, of course, which I think I would be remiss not to mention this, is that... Um, Certainly for both uh, sexual dysfunction and um, any feelings of discomfort in the vaginal area, orgasm issues, uh, we were remiss not to mention the value of sex toys. So, And they all have unbelievably cute names. I mean, there's things like <laughs> the Loki, Lily, Lilo, Siri. I mean, I, there's cute two-syllable words. But it is, it, it's fabulous to improve, uh, again, blood flow to the area sensation it's something to bring into um the relationship as well and uh i think uh, you know that also just sort of brings in be open with your communication about what you want and what your needs are and don't i mean to be honest i think that most partners want to know what they can do to help here so please that's a big thing is to not be embarrassed not feel self-conscious you know, these. this is really important. So I, that's one thing we didn't get into, but I would say that's important to include. I love it. You're going to have to come back for season three and then we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll dive more into that. Okay. How can our listeners keep following you and all your wonderful tips and, and, and advice on um, women's health? So um, my website uh, is, is full of a lot of my ponderings. Uh, <laughs> com. I have a section on my website called Share the Health, and that's where I post a lot of my tips and blog posts. Um, Also, I'm on Facebook, Redefining Health Medical. That's my office. And on Instagram as well, Dr. Sadati. And uh, I do have a newsletter. So if you guys um, actually go onto my website, um, I'd be happy to have you join my newsletter. And we just send out information on all kinds of women's health. Perfect. Thank you so much, Anita. Thank you so much, Katie. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. Join me next week when I talk self-love with Christine Marie Mason, the founder of Rosebud Woman, which offers a line of luxury, plant-based, intimate wellness products. Special thanks to Michael Mancini Productions, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties.